0: morning as we look in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, um, some things kind of jump out on the page at you, but it reminds me, this this scripture came to life for me about ten years ago. I had the opportunity, we were in Louisiana at the time, and uh, one of the church members there had bought a motorcycle, and uh, it was uh, what I consider his midlife crisis. He had bought a lot of things uh, that year prior, but one of the things he bought was this nice uh, nice, nice motorcycle. And so after church one Sunday, we'd gone over to eat at their home, and he said, "Would you like to take a ride on the motorcycle?" And I'm like, "Sure, why not?" And so uh, Louisiana did not have a helmet law at the time, uh, and he didn't have a helmet, which, uh, duh, I shouldn't have gotten on, uh, But uh, so I decided to ride with him, and so I, you know, it put me on the back of the bike, and uh, it had been, gosh, it had been almost, I would say, 30 years since I've been on a motorcycle, uh, so to speak, and. So um, we we get out on uh, out of the neighborhood, which the it's 20 miles per hour in the neighborhood, and we get out on a boulevard that is 45, okay, 45 miles an hour, and you know he's trucking along, and then we get on Highway 90, uh, and Highway 90 is uh, kind of a a dual lane road, but uh, speed limits like 55. Well, he got it up to 90, okay, and like I am petrified. Uh, I mean, I I don't even know how to describe it. No helmet uh it's all a blur all i remember is we he asked me you know we came to a stoplight he says where do you want to go i'm like let's go back towards where we came and i said let's let's go back through willowdale which was a residential area 20 miles an hour i'm thinking i'm not gonna let him know that i'm terrified and so as if he couldn't tell already and so we go back and so 20 miles an hour and we're going like 65 through that uh, 65 through that residential area i'm thinking if a child comes out in front of me, or if a deer comes out here in the middle of the world, we're going we're just gonna plow right through him. Ninety miles an hour is what we got up to. So when we parked the bike at his house, um, evidently I was such a shot, he had to peel me off of him. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, as he were here today, he would say he would say to you today. He said that is the closest any man has been in my space. In my entire life. And I have to tell you, I have never held on to someone as much as I held on to him in that moment. And it actually, listen, when you look at this passage of Scripture, it's exactly the prescription that you and I need to have when it comes to our faith. Basically, that you and I need to first and foremost hold on tight. If you look in verse 14 of the passage, Since we have a great high priest who is ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, notice it does not say hold firmly to the faith that you've inherited. Okay, Because here's the thing, we don't inherit faith. Faith is a conscious decision on our part to trust in something or someone. For instance, and for some of us, it kind of, becomes automatic in the sense of it becomes habitual to our lives, Uh, but faith is not automatic in in general because we have to make a decision to place our trust. And so each one of you, and maybe I've I've used this illustration before, but each one of you as you came in here, you're kind of an autopilot. You didn't go up to the pew or go up to the chair that you're sitting in and say, you know, can I trust you that you're going to hold me up? No, you just sat your bottom down and you had faith. Now, it's not something that you exercise that sin. It's kind of second nature because you're accustomed to observing what a chair is or what a pew does and you know that for all practical purposes i mean even though you might have put your hand uh, once or twice or three times in the cookie jar this week for all all propensity aside it's going to hold you up even if you gained a couple pounds this week it's going to be able to sustain you the faith that is mentioned here in hebrews is a faith that you and i must hold on tight it's the faith that we profess. Not a faith that was given to us by coming to church or kind of infused into our being by our parents or our grandparents or whatever it might be. It is a faith that we profess, that we hold fast to. It is a faith that has occurred or we have experienced. And so, the, you know, how do you, how do you know that it's real? Well, I would say this, the validity of our faith uh, the, at, the, at the basic substance of what it is, the validity of our faith is our faith's ability to hold up against everything that we face. If you have a, a faith that shatters when life storms come in, then that's not a faith worth holding on to. A faith worth holding on to, the faith that you and I need to be professing, is a faith that's going to weather any and every storm, any and every event, any and every transaction any and every experience that you and I might face. And what you will find out is that as we journey in life, life tends to polish and correct our beliefs and what we profess uh, uh, as as we experience the storms in our journey. And so as those storms come, we might tweak this or the Lord might tweak that. And so uh, consequently, uh, for the most part, I would say that if you accepted Christ uh, 20 years ago that your faith for the most part has transitioned in that 20 years you've gotten more mature in your faith and some of the things that you held dear uh, dear to and some of the things that you thought were absolutely essential now may not be the essential things the things that you were willing to 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 stand up and oppose the things that you were dogmatic about 20 years ago or 30 years ago or even 10 years ago may not be the very things that you're dogmatic about today because as you and I journey in our faith in our struggle with God and in our commitment to God and in our wrestling with God and getting our hands and our minds and our hearts around what it means to follow Him, we're told to hold firmly to that faith that we profess. So the question is for us, what is the faith that we profess? Uh, When you think about it, what, what are the basic tenets of the faith that you and I would I mean, I think all of us would say that the very central uh, central, uh, belief to our faith is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and through Him, anyone has the ability to have life as long as they commit and pursue Him. That would be kind of fundamental to our faith, so to speak. But what else embodies the faith that we profess. We need to think about those things. We need to think about what we consider the most important things to our faith. What are the the most important tenets of our faith? And we need to make sure that the things that we think are important are the things that matter to the heart of God. They're the things that are outlined in Scripture. And what what you will realize is uh, a lot of times the things that we think are important are not always the very things that God thinks are important. The things that we hold dear are not necessarily the things that he holds dear. How do we know that? Because when we look in the New Testament, we encounter a Jesus that is radically different from other religious leaders of His day. We encounter a Jesus that does not want to have anything to do with religious people. He wants to deal with people that are in tune with the Father. He doesn't want to deal with people that seem to have it all figured out. He wants to deal with people and ministry, uh, have ministry with people and converse with people and spend time with people who are sinners, who are broken, and who really, for the most part, are the outcasts of society. The people that a lot of us in the church as religious people don't necessarily affiliate with, or the people that we will do ministry to, but that we wouldn't do ministry with. See, Jesus embraces people. Jesus doesn't just serve people. Jesus doesn't just minister to people. He embraces those very people that he's ministering with. So if you're coming to Feast of Sharing, listen, one of the things that we need to get our our hands around, our minds around, and definitely our hearts around is we're not doing this to people. We're doing this with them. We're embracing people not so that we can say we've embraced them. We're embracing people because the gospel fundamental to our faith that we profess says that we need to care for those who are hungry. We need to care for those who are thirsty. We need to care for orphans and widows and anyone else in the stream of consciousness that God brings to the forefront of our minds, uh, that God brings to the forefront of our place so that we can see that if there's someone that has needs, we have an obligation to attempt to meet those needs. What is or what embodies the faith that we profess? You and I need to hold on tight to the substance of that faith. Now, the other thing I would say, looking in this passage, it says in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. What does that communicate to us? I think it communicates an essential point of our faith, or it needs to be a central point of our faith, and that is this reality that Christ knows our journey. You see, we have the ability when someone asks us about our journey there are situations there are stories there are things that make up our journey that we might omit there are things that when we're sharing our story we'll gloss over some of those dark areas of our lives some of those pivotal moments where we either royally messed up or those pivotal moments just and some sometimes we're consciously omitting things and then other times we just it's just a sin of omission, so to speak. We just forget about mentioning certain things. You see, God knows everything about our story. God knows everything about our journey in Christ, who is the high priest. And what is the high priest? The high priest in this section of Hebrews, high priest for the Jewish people, was the one that would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is celebrated in the Jewish calendar, and they would offer sacrifices to the Most High God, he was the representative of the people. In fact, when he would go into the temple to give sacrifice, because the Holy of Holies was so holy, they would actually tie a little rope around his legs so that if he actually touched the Ark of the Covenant or he encountered the presence of God and he was to die, they could pull him out of the Holy of Holies. So that they who were impure um, had not gone through the rituals of being made pure would uh, they, they would not uh, they would not corrupt. Uh, the, holy, the holiest part of the temple. So this high priest, this image is the one who is an intercessor. This high priest is one who goes on behalf of others and lays down before the others or for the others, for the sake of the others, the sacrifice. So in Jesus Christ we have the ultimate high priest at our disposal. This high priest, however, is not so religious and so haughty and so pompous and so removed from the wickedness, depravity, or so removed from the commoner of the day that he can't identify with those he's sacrificing for. No, this high priest, the person of Jesus Christ, in verse 15, says... He is not unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one in him who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So the next time you are thinking to yourself, well, you know what, I'm not perfect. And so, you know, you kind of use that, I don't know if you've ever used that as an excuse for whatever course of action or behavior you're going to do. Uh, but a lot of times in my own psyche, oh, maybe I'm weird, but I think to myself, well, you know, I'm only human. How many of you have ever thought to that to yourself? I'm just human. Okay? Yeah, we, we've said that to ourselves. And in a way, it is our mind's attempt, our fleshly attempt, to get out of our predicament or to explain away our fallen nature so that we don't have culpability or responsibility for the decision or the statement that we're going to make. The reality is, though, that that doesn't work. Because you and I, as we are tempted and as, you know, we we can say, well, I just, I wish I could be, you know, if I was Jesus, I wouldn't have to deal with this. Well, no, because, well, you see, when we confess or we make the statement that I'm merely human, that's not really saying anything because Jesus was human. Listen, to be a sinner is not to be human. Because if we believe to be human is to be a sinner, then we've got a big problem when it comes to explaining Jesus because we believe he was without sin. So, therefore, a qualification of being human doesn't mean that we're sinners. It does not imply that we are sinners. What it means is that you and I, who is not a perfect human being, have the propensity. We are drawn to sin, and we are tempted. The sin is not the temptation. You can be, listen, you can be tempted to do a lot of things. Sin is not being tempted, because as we find in Hebrews chapter 4, Jesus was tempted. In fact, it goes on to say that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as you are. So let's unpack that a little bit. You know, it's not, a lot of times we, we gloss over the scripture. Jesus was tempted in every way. Let that set that in. Jesus was tempted in every way. So as you think about your own story and your own journey... Gentlemen, when you've lusted after someone or you're tempted to lust, Jesus was tempted in every way. When you're tempted to cheat somebody by not reporting something that you should be reporting on your taxes, Jesus was tempted in every way. In every way imaginable, you will never be able, based on scripture, and I believe it is the truth, it doesn't contain the truth, it is the truth. When it says that Jesus was tempted in every way, that means that there is no way in which you or, 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 or no way that we are going to be tempted that Jesus has not been tempted. And yet the Bible goes at great length to say, though he was tempted, he did not sin. The difference between you and me and Jesus is the fact that we are sinners and He is not. But in His priesthood, in His work, He is able to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet He did not sin. What does that say to us? It means, ultimately, Christ knows our journey. And listen... Christ knows our journey. It does not mean that the knowledge is merely about what we do or what we have the potential to do. Christ knows our journey. He he doesn't just have knowledge of us. He has knowledge of what it means to be a man, to take on flesh, and to be tempted in every way under the universe. And yet, He chose not sin, even though he experienced temptation. What does that mean for you and me? It means that in this high priest, he identifies with us. It means that we identify with him in our depravity. Listen, listen. Our identification with Christ is not in the greatness of our humanity. Our identity in Christ is found in the lowliness of what it means to be tempted our identity with christ listen it is in our worst day that christ shows up in the most amazing way because through his amazing grace that we've sung about today grace enables us to continue on the journey grace enables us not to be defined by past mistakes Grace enables us to do what I talked about last week, letting go what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, press on toward the goal which Christ Jesus has planned for you and me. Christ knows our journey. Christ knows every nook and cranny, every way that you and I have been tempted, every form of everything. And yet, yet, He does not hang his head in shame of us, but he hung his head and his body as a sacrifice for our mistakes and our sinfulness. In Christ, we find someone who knows our journey more than anyone else. He's not a high priest who is detached from our experience. He is the high priest who has experienced all of what you And I can experience. Then verse 16. Let us then, because of what has been laid out before, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Verse 16 gives an innate quality of what God is. I want you to notice of what His throne is described as. It does not say, as, as some would want to rant and rave about in verse 16, it does not say, let us then approach God's throne of judgment with confidence. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace. Is that not beautiful? I want you to think about that. We don't approach the throne of God and that throne being judgment. We approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and what? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. As religious people, we're very good at dispensing judgment and wrath of God. We're not good. Now, we'll talk about grace, but what I want you to understand is his throne is a throne of grace, his presence is a presence of grace of grace his presence is a presence of love judgment does not make me want to draw near to God listen I sat for years under preaching and under a ministry that was wrath 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 and I don't want to diminish the fact that there is the wrath of God but for every dimension that we want to explore the wrath of God I can share with you 10 stories about how God was gracious to people so if God is going to listen, if God has a Ph.D., God has a Ph.D. in grace. He minors in judgment. He majors in grace. How do I know that? The fact that you and I are sitting in this very room with all of our depravity, with all of our journeys, with all of our mess and muck and everything else in between, the fact that we are still able to come to God just as we are says to me he is a gracious God because let me tell you something the one who created the universe he didn't have to use us he did not have to create Adam and Eve he did not need us to do his work he did not need us to live and to thrive he chose to give you and me life and opportunity and decision and choice and it is our choice to choose life that we might live, that we might choose Christ to make him known. That is a gracious God. He doesn't need us, but He chooses to want us at His table. That is the amazing, amazing work of God. Don't listen, we should never think to ourselves that God needs us. Chris talked about a mission trip to Belize, we've got a mission trip to Rwanda. We possibly got a mission trip to Italy this year in 2016. But nobody that goes on those mission trips, we should never buy into the idea that God needs us because He doesn't. But He chooses to use us because He knows we are at our very best when we understand that He is the high priest who has sacrificed everything for our life and vitality, that we have life, help, hope, grace, love, peace, prosperity, and everything else because of Him. His grace is sufficient. Why? Because He embodies it. It is the very throne that He sits upon. Grace. So as we enter His presence, as we come to Christ, as our journey intersects His, and as His story intersects ours, And so many of us live, live in the shadows of the Almighty. We live with kind of sackcloth. We live in darkness. We live, we want to cover our face. We want to cover our eyes. We want to cover our experience because we're ashamed at where we've been. We're ashamed of what we've done. We're ashamed at our our story. I want you to understand today that God, though we, though we perceive it that way, God does not see us in our wretchedness. God sees us the throne of His grace. God sees us in potential. How do I know that? Look at the New Testament. Look at how many times He called ordinary people like you and me. I mean, uh, He called His disciples. There was nothing innately great about the disciples. One of them was a tax collector. I don't even like tax collectors. I hate taxes. And yet, He chose one of those tax people that works for the Jerusalem IRS to be at the center of Christendom, to advance his gospel. Listen, it's never based on our identity or how we assume people to be. It is always based on potential. Therefore, as we approach the throne of grace and we recognize how much grace we so desperately need, we recognize how much grace we have received, therefore be it known that when you and I encounter the darkness of the world, When people approach us and we approach them, we need to approach them in the same God-given potential that God has approached us. Thank God He did not judge me based on what I was or who I was. Thank God He judged me and placed His confidence in me through the lens of His grace that I might be a a beacon of hope and light and transformation. Listen, God never, ever, 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 ever gives up on anybody. So why should we? God never gives up on everybody. God desires the entire world to be transformed through the power of Christ. God does not predetermine some for hell and some for heaven. God gives us the choice. God gives us the choice. We can choose Him or we can choose to pursue our own direction. But make no mistake, He sits on on his throne of grace he is the intercessor he is the high priest and the fact that a world that is lost and dying without him has the ability to love and experience joy and happiness is a tangible result of his grace not of their merit you and i live in the kind of the unknown area between grace despair. You and I live in a journey where some days are great and some days are not so great. But Christ knows our journey. He knows every decision that we've made. He knows what has brought us into this moment in time in this place at 15 to 12 on November the 15th of 2015. He knows your story and my story better than we know it. And yet still, though he knows all the things that we would like to forget about, he knows all the things that we're not even have knowledge of that were wrong. He still chooses, chooses to love us and still chooses to bestow his grace upon us, choosing to give us Opportunity. He didn't have to do it this way. God is not defined by our hopes and our dreams. His will is not changed by necessarily our desires. His will comes true in the person of Christ and everything emanates from Jesus the high priest who sits on a throne of grace to help us in our time of need. So what does verse 16 tell us? Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us on our time of need. Isn't Isn't that kind of an interesting word? Approach God's throne. Approach God's throne of grace with confidence. You know, I would think if I was writing, I would think, gosh, I would approach God's throne of grace in humility. No. He says, approach God's throne of grace with confidence. What can be going on here? What is God trying to communicate? This is what he's trying to communicate. He's saying, come to Jesus with great expectations. Come with confidence. Come with the knowledge that you are going to exceedingly go beyond what you ever asked, imagined, or dreamed. That when you and I approach the creator of the universe, when we approach Christ, who is the high priest, hold on tight, get ready, because when this roller coaster takes off, it's going to take us to an unknown, non-predetermined destination. And we're not just there for the ride. We're there for the duration of the journey. Listen, the joy of a roller coaster ride is not the end. It is the experience. The joy of the Christian life, the joy of the life journey, as much as we want to talk about the final destination of heaven, the joy of the journey is the experience. That's why when people say, well, I'm going to wait to get serious about my relationship to God. I'm going to wait till I'm a little bit older because I want to have it my way like Burger King. And I want to do what I want. I want to I sow my wild seeds. I want to live, you know. And you know what? You have the freedom to do that. You have the power of choice. But you and I are delusional, delusional to think that though we have the freedom, that by waiting, we're going to experience a better life. See, for those of us who are waiting, we've only got the end in sight. We're putting the cart before the horse. We're putting the prize before the journey. We're in the journey now. Make the decision now to follow Jesus. Make the decision now to trust in Him. Make the decision now to offer the correctives that you and I so desperately need. Approach His throne of grace with confidence, with great expectations Expecting Him to do great and wondrous things. Come with confidence. Come expecting God to do amazing things. Come in anticipation of finding that which we so desperately need. Notice what he says. He says in verse 16, Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find what? And find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, to find grace which we so desperately, desperately need. You want to turn the world upside down? It's not going to be about picketing a Starbucks coffee cup you want to turn the world upside down? It's not about rallying about homosexual marriage or anything else. You want to turn the world upside down? It's not about offering your pithy cliches and your judgments against this group and that group and this group and that group or this denomination or those people that don't believe exactly about the way you think or the way you think you need to act or you need to live. Listen, if you want to turn the world upside down, you and I will turn the world upside down when we empty ourselves of our ambitions, our wants, our desires, our preconceived notions, our prejudices, and everything else in between. and when we completely and totally, totally empty ourselves and we're filled up with a dynamic work of the great expectation of God as experienced in the Lordship of Jesus Christ when we come to Him in a throne of grace, when we recognize that we receive far more than we can ever give back and when you and I are defined solely by the person who's given it all. That is when we will turn the world upside down. We can rant, we can rave, we can, we can preach at, we can preach to, we can offer judgment and condemnation against this group and that group and this person and that person and this relationship and that, that relationship. Listen, all we do when you and I do that is push people further away from the gospel of Christ. If you and I are interested in changing the world, you don't change the world by separating yourself from the world. You change the world by impacting it for the kingdom of God. And the way that you and I do that is by embracing people. Loving people, allowing them to approach the throne of grace, not the throne of judgment where we have kicked God off His throne and put ourselves in His place as if we are worthy to judge the right and wrong actions of people. The throne of grace. The throne of grace that Jesus, Jesus Christ sits on, have great anticipation, have great expectation, come with an anticipation of finding that which you and I and the rest of the world so desperately, desperately needs. In short, when it comes to grace, we need to expect it. We need to find it. And we need to be sustained by it. Will you pray with me? God, as we come into this time of invitation... In which collectively our experiences and our journeys coalesce in this moment. And as we think about our beliefs and our confidence about how we should hold tight to that which we profess. As we think about the fact that you know and identify in our journey. As we think about that we need to come to you with great expectations. God, may we put off anything that hinders us. May we surrender everything that ends up captivating our attention more so than being captivated by the throne of grace which is the person of Jesus Christ as He reaches into the midst of who we are, as He speaks life into our lostness, as He speaks life into our depravity, as He speaks life into our chaos, as He is the life and author, the finisher of our faith, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. God, may we have our beginning and our end in Him. And there's some here this morning, there's some here this morning, Lord, who have never, ever, ever surrendered to You. They've lived in fear of you. They've lived in fear of your judgment and wrath. They've lived in fear of the condemnation that they believe and they perceive that they would receive from others. But they've never, ever, ever just lived in the shadow of the Almighty. They've never, ever lived and dwelled in your presence, a presence of grace and love and compassion. And someone in this room today, in this very room, in this very room, they know who they are. They need to surrender their life to Christ. That person may be in a person that's attended church for decades. It may be somebody who's new. It makes no difference whether they're young or old, whether it's a new story, an old story. It makes no difference if it's a remembered story, forgotten story, or anything else in between. What matters is it's a story that the Lord Jesus Christ knows. It's a story that he not only knows well, it is a story that he empathizes with because he knows in every way, shape, and form that we are tempted. And when we fail, he knows what it's like to have the potential to fail because he knows our temptation. He's been tempted in every way. For some of us today, we would say, I just not had the strength. I've not had the strength to give to my marriage. I've not had the strength to sustain my marriage. I've not had the strength to make it I, I feel like I'm defeated I feel like I am broken come to Jesus with great expectations come with confidence of knowing that he who created you for more than what you find yourself in today is a God who can deliver you from whatever is keeping you from living a fulfilling joyful life There's others here that say, I want to be a part of what First Baptist Church is doing. I want to be an integral part of this church family. That invitation is also open to you. For others who are dealing with spiritual decisions, whether they're called to go on mission, whether they're called into ministry, whether they are considering about whether they should be a part of Feast of Sharing or Operation Christmas Child, and all these opportunities that you have given us, Lord, may we approach you with confidence today to emphatically say, yes, we will, because we know that you have already done it for us. You have given it all. You've sacrificed it all. you put it all on the line for our sake. God, in this invitation, as we respond, as the Holy Spirit speaks and works in our hearts, as our our emotions have gone awry, as we're struggling, as we're just waiting so that we can leave this place and run as far away from here as possible, see, if that's your feeling this morning, I want you to know the Holy Spirit, listen, you can run, you will never hide. God knows you. He knows your story. He doesn't want you to live in fear of Him. He wants you to live with the knowledge of knowing that He prayed to paid price for you. He loves you. And He sees you in your God-given potential. You've never arrived until you've arrived in Him. You are never defined until you are defined by Him. The One who created you has created you for more than where you are today. Regardless of where you are. No matter how great or small you perceive yourself to be. God is in the business of moving mountains. God is in the business of changing lives. And we are so grateful to be a part of a church family at First Baptist that are experiencing the blessings of God, the wholeness of God, the challenge of God. May we expect great things from a mighty God who is mighty to save, who is mighty to transform. God, may we be transformed in our ministry. May we be transformed in our service as you continue to draw us into your very presence. As we approach the throne of grace and not judgment for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're this morning as we stand and as they lead us in song, if you need to make a decision to trust in Christ, you need to make a decision to join this fellowship, you need to make a decision or you need to pray at the altar, whatever God, however God is leading and directing you, will you be faithful to do just that? And as you walk this aisle and as you approach His throne, You approach a throne, a safe zone of grace, love, and compassion. It's not that because I say it is. It's that because it's his place to meet you. God wants to meet you face to face in this place, in this time. Won't you come as we stand and as we worship in closing?